Selected readings from Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. At the far end of town where the crickle grass grows, and the wind smells slow and sour when it blows, and no birds ever sing excepting old crows, is the street of the lifted Lorax. And deep in the crickle grass, some people say, if you look deep enough, you can still see today where the Lorax once stood just as long as it could before somebody lifted the Lorax away. What was the Lorax? And why was it there? And why was it lifted and taken somewhere from the far end of town where the crickle grass grows? The old onceler still lives here. Ask him. He knows. The Lorax said nothing. Just gave me a glance, just gave me a very sad, sad, backwards glance as he lifted himself by the seat of his pants. And I'll never forget the grim look on his face when he heisted himself and took leave of this place through a hole in the smog without leaving a trace. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with one word, unless... Whatever that meant, I just couldn't guess. That was long, long ago. But each day since that day, I've sat here and worried and worried away. Through the years, while my buildings have fallen apart, I've worried about it with all of my heart. But now, says the Wunzler, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing is going to get better. It's not. Welcome to the Becoming Human podcast. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. I know this kind of perspective and process and discovery, it's not for everyone. Uh, I'm also not great at advertising. So... If you know someone who's a bit weird and eccentric and is into things like learning and living and doesn't mind some random person rambling on, hey, go ahead and tell them about it. And if you're interested in supporting the show financially, I do try to supplement my family's income with writing and, and with this podcast, and I'd appreciate it. Anything helps, you can do that at coffee, which is ko-fi.com slash becoming human. That being said... Something to ponder as we continue our conversation on ecology. Last episode, after I finished an unnecessary and incessant attempt to argue for a philosophical rationalization of ecological ethics, I told you I would tell you about the one approach that I think can make that happen. Kind of. If my rant was accurate, ecological entanglement, contingency, inherent value, inherent process, and teleological ethics... How can we most practically and usefully and realistically be responsible to that? You know, how, how would you live if you were exactly what was needed to heal the world? That's the question I kind of want to explore. So let's get into it. Let's learn. Let's grow. And let's become a bit more human. I want to begin with a question. And I think this is a fair question because we do this all the time in reverse order. I'm a, I'm a fan of ancient history. I read books about things that were happening thousands of years ago. And I love hearing updates on archaeological finds and 
Occasionally, you know, there'll, there'll be a letter or an inscription where you can actually you can actually read what someone wrote and thought centuries, even even sometimes a millennia ago. It's amazing. And I sometimes will wonder, do you think the person, you know, that dropped the coin we're analyzing or or wrote the letter or died in some violent battle was sitting there thinking, you know, I wonder what people will say about this 2,000 years from now. No. Come on. They, They were going, yeah, someone will run my DNA through lab equipment and find out that, you know, my my relatives migrated from this other country. Or, or you know, they're thinking that some professor would be lecturing on their culture, making all these vast insinuations based on the letter they wrote to their friend. And, and just like they probably didn't consider how their moment in history would be analyzed thousands of years after them, we probably don't think about that too often either. Like somehow, you know, like a piece of mail you dropped or, uh, you know, this letter that you just scratched some things on and sent to somebody, like that could be the, the foundation of how somebody understands our culture millennia from now. So just like they probably didn't consider how their moment in history would be analyzed thousands of years after them, we probably don't think about that too often either. And I think one of the reasons we do this, and and every epoch of history probably has, is it's easy to think that, you know, we have arrived at the height of history. We are on the pinnacle of the mountain. And looking back after all that led up to this point, and we're not thinking about, well, people might come after us and then wonder what we were like before them. But I think there's also a good chance that Someone will be studying our artifacts and messages and historical moments in the same way that we do with former moments of history. And I suppose it's a fair conjecture that every epoch thinks they're on the mountaintop, that they have achieved the ultimate arrival of human existence. More realistically, however, is that we're just one sequence in a very long strand, and our current world will one day be reduced to a few words in a history book. The jury is still out, by the way, if our current epoch is progress or not. We definitely aren't the pinnacle of history, just like every other culture was not the pinnacle of history, but there's also some who would say, we've even moved backwards down the mountain. Like, we may be further away from the height of human potential than previous iterations of society. So, my question. 2,000 years from now, someone is reading a book about 21st century civilization, and there's a chapter on this country and nation state called the United States. What will that chapter say? You know, someone's reading about the global history of the 21st century. What's in that chapter? What does this century look like in a world history book, if, if they even have books 2,000 years from now? And think of the way that we speculate about former cultures and civilizations. They have no control over what we are going to say about them. And we might have one letter or or fragment of something that we then take and apply to the whole thing, and maybe it was actually just an outlier. So what might they end up saying about us? I, I think it's a good way to try to be as unbiased as possible about where we are right now. Analyze us like we might analyze the ancient Romans or or Confucius or the Gauls in Europe or the 
seafaring tribes of the Pacific Ocean. And and it's really interesting because there's all these movies and TV shows right now, like historical dramas, where I imagine if the people from that time period sat down and watched them, they probably incessantly claim, like, wait a second, it wasn't like that at all. So so what does the, the cinematography of our time period look like in 2,000 years? Now, I don't want to get all doomsday here, but think about this question. 2,000 years from now, what, what will they say about this? And what are the chances that they are reading about us or, or watching that show and they come across this phrase, power plant? So they go on searching and they're like, oh, so there was this thing called electricity. What in the world was electricity? Like, is there is there a chance that because of our current society, that future societies will be living in the wake of such cataclysmic change that they won't even know about what we assume is a daily necessity? And this happened before, by the way. We're constantly discovering elements of ancient life that were highly advanced, and we have no clue how they did it because it got lost in time. Steps backwards happen. Or if we, we want to take this hypothetical turn of events further, what are the chances that there aren't even people to read about us in 2,000 years? And I'm not saying because of nuclear disaster, we're just destined for ecological demise. But let's be honest. We wouldn't be the first people in world history to think that there would be an end. Or, simply, will people 2,000 years from now just look back at, back at us and balk? Like, they had no clue what they were doing. Will they just see us as a you know wandering group of barbarians whose only value is to learn from our mistakes? What will people say for about us 2,000 years from now? All right, that's enough of that thinking exercise. Hopefully you had fun. I really do enjoy that speculation. But the real reason I bring that up is because we like to talk about the past and we like to talk about the future. But the past simply informs the present, and the future will only exist based on what we do with that informed present. In the option of non-existence, it is possible, whatever side of the ecological, political debate you're on. And it might not even be anything of our own doing. But with the limited capability we have, the reality is that continuing the narrative of human history will happen most fruitfully if we are intentional about the direction we want to go. And this isn't necessarily, a, you know, I want my grandchildren to exist, so you have to recycle and compost your own manure and save some oil, will ya? I'm saying, are we continuing the existence of the world in a way that makes things as best as possible? In a way that allows them to continue in a way everyone would deem good? Which is technically a value argument, and the last two episodes was an attempt to state my case on that. But we're not going to blunder our way into a vital realization of ecological entanglement and universal flourishing. So what should we do? And what can we actually do with the limited meager lives we have? Now, I'm not saying that Dr. Seuss's The Lorax is an allegory for the modern world. It's not an exact description of the 20th century. It is a good story, though. And it's quite parabolic. It's, it's like good prophecy, not a prediction of the future, but a way to reveal what's going on through beautiful images and stories. And every people in history has had the opportunity to be the onceler, 
Every people in history has also had the option to be the child in that story. Either way, we gotta choose. And so in light of history and the future, what's the way forward? In light of all the philosophical acrobatics I've offered, what ought this look like so that 2,000 years from now, people look back and they go, well, that was a good step. What kind of economy should result from the notion of ecological entanglement? What kind of food should be involved amongst contingent beings in the world? How should communities and politics and technology be organized in reference to inherent value, inherent process, and, and teleology? How would you live if you were exactly what was needed to heal the world? All right. So I want to offer a conclusion I've come to. And, th and this is anecdotal, by the way. I've done no quantitative research on this. I'm just spitballing here. But before I offer what I think may be the best and most reasonable answer to those questions, I, I kind of want to speak my piece on what I don't think it is. And again, it's my opinion. And remember, I've got a contrarian bend to me and I do think we have some evidence for what isn't the best course of action, but I'm not saying I figured this out. This isn't some sort of uh, absolute proof. This is just kind of what I've observed. Because if we have learned anything from the environmentalist movement, and most movements in general, a macro-style approach never seems to achieve its desired end. Trying to get billions of people to all adhere to a single proposal in millions of different contexts, it sounds really good. Like that goes, oh yeah, if we could do that, that would fix it. But may luck be with you as you go. You know what I mean? Like I've already taken up the issue with the word environment. Probably not too surprising that I don't care for the environmentalist movement either. But outside of my disdain for the word environment, there's a general issue with the concept of using it within a movement. And I'm not saying that the environmentalist movement or green movement is bad. I think it does some good things. But I also think it falls short. And I think it falls short by design. And here's why. The concept of a movement is too big. In the modern world, movements has, have also been primarily aimed at changing public policy. At least in the last decade or so, there has been other criticism. At best, you know, the environmentalist movement is seen as being too idealistic. You know, they create this great picture, but it's not practical. At worst, the environmentalist movement is seen as, you know, all these abstract ideas with no meaningful practice. So they're, they're able to do things, but it's, it's either not good or it's not effective. And, and everything I brought up in the last two episodes poses that same risk. Any macro-level proposal with the ultimate goal of creating a one-size-fits-all answer or large swath of public policy or that thinks it's going to set a global cultural change, it's going to pose that same risk. So even if we hear about ecological entanglement and we go like, yeah, that's it. So now just draft up a policy and get 8 billion people to, to agree to it. Well, that's not going to happen. You also have the risk of it either being too abstract and, and not actually giving anything practical or 
taking practical steps with such ineffectiveness that you have a couple cool concepts at the end of it and it doesn't do anything. But the real issue with a movement, you know, such as this, is that movements are based on generating communication that solidifies allegiance. Movements are not based on praxis. They are based on agreement and shared identity. They are about a way to think, a perspective, an ideology, not about the things that we should actually do. Because their core commitment is about getting people to agree together to then go and do the things. And one of the things you always just see with movements is that they, even if they're able to get that shared identity and that shared ideology, that the, the practical component is always set to the back because you're trying to influence 8 billion people at a time, that it never actually leads to execution. So it stays in sort of that ideation phase. Because the success of the movement requires adherence of a lot of people. The scale is just too big. And it can't just concern itself with practices. And this is an issue with, with politics. It's an issue with culture. It's an issue with religion. You name it. How do you get 8 billion people to all agree to the same thing? Movements, therefore, tend to go the way of the fashionable fad. And when you look at historical movements, many of them did transition culture. But few of them actually sustained other than being, you know, a blip on historical radars that we read about now. You know, some of them get a chapter in history books, others get a few sentences. But at, at the end of almost every movement you see, and I'm not trying to say that movements are bad or that they're wrong, it's just that they're ineffective. They, they have a very low ceiling to them. And, and let's be honest too, before I get too much criticism here, yes, movements have absolutely shaped the world that we live in today. But as far as practical outcomes that have sustained over time, they're ineffective. And in modern societies, we've seen a certain captivation with political momentum of various causes. And I think part of this captivation is because of sentimentalism. You know, we, we like the way that this sounds. I think the other issue with this is because it is purely an idea. And humans have this tendency to always have good ideas and not be as interested in the long game of executing them. And so when somebody says, you know, here's a nice idea, we go, oh yeah, that sounds really good. Hey, and, you know, public policy will just change everything. Oh wow, look, we get to kind of skip right to the answer that we've been, you know, looking for. So if you happen to have a really charismatic leader, the cause may continue on, but the movement tends to only last as long as the initial circumstances last, or as long as the emotive response lasts. That's the situation of movements. They are mostly rhetorical because they are so macro that the majority of their emphasis is trying to get people to see something similarly. And they have to be captivating or inspiring in order to change public perception, which you know usually deals with a lot of pathos, emotive rhetoric to get people on board. So they may shape how we view stuff and they, they may, you know, cause incre incremental change in society. But the basic design of a movement is that there's not a lot of practical action built in long term. And, and they typically only come and go as a fashion. 
They stay top of mind as long as the circumstances endure or the emotion compels our purview. Then it's back to people responding as individual, finite people making decisions based on the world that they actually see and know and live in. And that's why the primary goal is often some law or policy change. Because that seems like the way humans think we will best change existence. We know that in order for this to endure, it's going to have to endure generationally. And look, a law or a policy can endure past multiple generations. But we've legally stopped, you know, tyrants and genocides. But we haven't stopped tyrannies and mass killings of civilians. We've legally ended slavery, but we haven't stopped slave trafficking or created equality. You know, in the the United States, we've arrived at voting opportunities, but we haven't stopped misogyny. It's almost as if we get a law or amendment in place and we go, see, we did it. But I'm not so sure that in the larger scope of existence that we actually did much of anything except for, you know, maybe creating awareness or expectation, which, listen, that's still a really good thing. Again, I'm not saying that movements are bad. I'm saying they're limited. And we're seeing this right now in the midst of, you know, the pro-life, pro-choice debate. A few decades ago, there was an enacted policy. It really didn't change things too much. It it gave the world something to think about. And as we've seen, the pro-life, pro-choice debate has become one of the central markers of how you identify as a human being. But it still tends to only reside in the mental storage bank of public consciousness. And I guess that's not a criticism either. Because that's a necessity of movement rhetoric. If you're trying to change things for millions of people at a time, you got to get them to think about it. But it didn't change praxis. And again, in order to, to change public perception or get people to think about things successfully, the rhetoric that will stay in public consciousness also has to be simple. And it has to be accessible. It also has to remain abstract so that it can make sense in as many contexts as possible. A lot of times what happens is that the masses take up the idea, and this can be done in a bit of ignorance, not because they're stupid, but because in order to affect millions or even billions of people, we had to continually pare down the communication so that it could make sense to more and more and more people, which means it's a lot harder for people to own that for themselves. And then very few tend to take the time to understand the complexity involved And then to actually move that ideation into execution. And what you're left with is just a lot of good thoughts. And at best, it's really inspiring and it feels really good. And then life continues to move on. And that's now no longer part of our central communication until something of the movement comes up again. Which again, this is what we're seeing with the pro-life, pro-choice debate. And all of this interaction with movements because of how this works by design by necessity it's usually powered by impatience or guilt or or just that short-term enthusiasm and it, and it may be cool and hip and trendy and social but it's ineffective you you get a lot of people doing certain actions for a short period of time and lots of people responding with their agreement or maybe some behaviors that, that aren't bad, but they're not enough. You know, having having cool memes or, you know, 
environmentalist movement oriented, supplying reusable cups, it's not going to be enough. And that's often the best case scenario for a movement. So the short version here, if there is a philosophical rationalization for ethics or, or a moral certainty that should be realized in the human journey, the stroke of a pen or the proclamation by someone designated with authority is not going to actually change the re lived reality of all human existence. That would be great. It would be way easier, but it's not likely to work. And, and just to be clear, I don't think we would want it to. Because what happens when the wrong person has the authority to sign a paper or mo mobilize a movement that kills millions of people? Or goes the complete opposite direction of what would be ethical? And this has happened countless times too. Good thing that this is not the highest standard for determining human life. And yes, you, you have the complicated process of determining ethics in the first place. So it isn't always clear exactly what the best thing is. And if you sign something into paper, we might look back 2,000 years from, go, from now and go, hmm, I don't think they knew what they were doing. And this is why I spent about two hours trying to explore eco ecological ethics in the first place. And why I spent about 10 episodes exposing that the very real problem with human beings is that we don't quite know how to think about ethics well. So, is there an alternative to the movement option? Short answer, no, there's not. Uh, the, the macro, large-scale attention that a movement can, can touch, it's really hard to replicate that by any other means. It, 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 that's kind of why it is done this way, because it's kind of the only way to have that macro-level effect. But how, how do you overcome the shallowness? Or, or ineffectiveness that movements have. Now, we're getting even more into my personal emphasis here, uh, but at the heart of any issue is that it comes down to people. Every single person in every single moment is contributing to the state of the world. And at the end of the day, people are making decisions with their limited existence based on the information they have and the world they know. That is a very macrocosmic focus. I mean, we're talking about every person in the world, but macrocosmic action, no matter how we want to spin it, always deals with microcosmic individuals interacting with the world right in front of them. So you can have this big, abstract, simplified rhetoric affecting 8 billion people at a time. At the end of the day, they're going to live in the world that they see and know right in front of them. So if we want global transformation, it has to begin with human transformation. At the end of the discussion, the state of things will be formed by the decisions of regular people. You want to change the world? You got to change people. And you can't just change people with ideas. This is what Gandhi meant when he talked about how if you want to create a world of peace without having people of peace, you're destined to fail. And think about the experience of Martin Luther King Jr., which, listen, yes, I know, Gandhi and MLK probably are the best uh, proponents of, look, that's a movement that worked. Again, look past their generation, and you can question if it did actually change and transform the way the world functions. It changed things, but it didn't change everything. 
and MLK, he led a movement. It was fashionable in some ways. It generated huge crowds. But we all know that uh, MLK's popular I Have a Dream speech was in the middle of his work, right? That's all. That's what we talked about, MLK's I Have a Dream speech. But MLK's process with the civil rights movement began with speeches and large-scale efforts and reframing public consciousness. And it certainly had its positive effects. But it was geared toward policy change. Then policy changed, but people didn't. The policy change didn't keep people from killing children. And you get a sense that when MLK gave his, his eulogy for martyred children, that he realized the movement wouldn't bring about the necessary change. And you also notice that Martin Luther King Jr., after that speech, was no longer just a problem for social norms. He became a hated enemy at that point. MLK didn't get assassinated because of his dream speech. He was assassinated because he started attacking the root of the problem. He started wanting to change the actual way and ethics of ordinary people all over the nation. Governmental pressure, policy changes, and simple expressions that modify our ecological ethics aren't going to change much because at the end of the day, we are talking about a lifestyle that individuals choose within an ingrained culture that has made it acceptable, convenient, and normal to choose it. You have people simply responding to their circumstances and situations and mortal lives in which they are trying to survive in the best way possible. No swipe of a pen or pristine announcement is going to make the ideals happen, in my opinion. Ecological entanglement requires playing the long game, which requires playing the human game. Essentially, a correct ecological ethic can't happen without involving the individuals who will choose or not choose it. Policy doesn't change people. Policy is just a reflection of the norm or good intentions. People will still choose what they want to choose. So, what can we do? All right, so that's my take on movements. And as I said, I'm a contrarian at heart. I'm also a bit of a misanthrope. And I usually get to this point in this discussion and go, listen, it's hopeless. You know, take any great sentiment. We're not just trying to, with movements, uh, you know, make some kind of new thing happen. We're still trying to solve problems that have been going on since recorded history. I mean, it's a bit depressing when you look at it. It's overwhelming. I get it. So I might as well share how I've responded to that futility. And it's called place economy. And it comes from a tradition. Uh, I'm sure by now you can guess which one. Agrarianism. And notice, I said place economy, not local economy. And they might not actually be that different. But local economy is a bit more of a movement. And it seems like it has become more of a brand than a, than a practice or an ethic. So allow me to emphasize the differences as we go. Now, part of this is based on the acceptance that you can never get everyone to do everything all at once. You know, therefore, what can you do? Well, you can do it. 
the singular version of you as one human being. Bad news, well, the quality of that effect can be awesome. The quantity will be minimal. It will be constrained to just you and what you actually end up doing, which if you're like me, won't be much either. But it's all you can do. So is that worth it? I don't know. Is one more person moving toward this better than one less person? Maybe. Maybe not. But it's all you realistically have control over. By the way, if, if you do look at some of the things we would call movements that have persisted over time, they all started this way. They started very small, with no grand speeches or spectacles or formal structures initiated within the you know, cutting of a red tape at a groundbreaking ceremony. And I know I rail on institutional Christianity every now and then, but here's the deal. Christianity began in an occupied territory with a small group of very average people. Most of them were teenagers when it all started. And if you look at the global terrain of first century history, Jesus is almost never brought up. In fact, the person we know as John the Baptist is referenced way more than Jesus in any historical account. And Jesus comes from an ethnic background, Judaism, that was almost obliterated by groups like the Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans. But have you ever met an Assyrian or a Babylonian? No. All of those groups and governments and empires only exist in history now. And, and we can debate the problems of what Christianity has become. I fully agree with that. But Christianity is still around and it is still active. Maybe not always in a healthy way, but it's still active. Christianity may be one of the few movements that have endured. And the reason may be, at least if we want to look at this sociologically, because it was not based on policy or authoritative declarations or macro level sentiments. Sure, th this is where, you know, our current institutional demarcation is a bit ironic because it became that, and that all started way back with Constantine in the fourth century, but it started with an emphasis on recognizing the necessity of the human person in the social setting. It was small, local, and sought transformation on the most ordinary level possible with the hopes of that transformation radiating to larger and larger levels macrocosmic through the microcosmic. And anyway, I'm not trying to say that this perspective that we're talking about here is the next Christianity, or even that it should function the same. But the process might be similar, because the emphasis of place economy is that it seeks to enact all the things we've talked about, but it accepts that it can only be enacted, the, these ecological ethics, with our meager lives, and it can only extend out to the small, meager places where we actually exist. Ecological ethics begins with us. It can also only begin where we are. But here's what it accomplishes. It recovers responsibility via proxy. It accepts working within our natural limits. And, and if you notice one theme throughout becoming human... It's that the phenomenological constraints of conscious beings cannot be avoided. You have to start there. So the first step of place economy is to know those limits. You have to know where you are. That's what I mean by responsibility via proxy. 
But how far does your proximity extend? It's a very good question, something that we have to wrestle with and there's no absolute answer to. You know, we could say you can't recognize your neighborhood from space. And what the, the agrarian emphasis is, is that your proxy extends to what you can see and know. And, and it's the same with relationships. You can know lots of people, but you can only know a handful. In, in fact, psychology seems to imply that there's a max of about 100 to 200. The same goes for spatial limitations. And because your human body is limited, and because time is limited, the larger you increase that scale, the less you will actually know. Attention and care decreases with quantity. So this whole concept of, you know, where you are can technically be global, but the further you go out, the less you can be there and the less you can actually know it with a sort of intimacy. So you got to start with, where are you? And it isn't as simple as an address indicator or mileage. Where you are is best determined by how far your knowledge can extend so that your presence is intimately in contact with the consistent space. Essentially, if you want to see where you are, you need to have your feet on the ground. You have to have these physical limitations, and so you got to work with them. And, and quite honestly, that's likely the only impact you are going to have. Focusing on our places of immediate context also has the benefit of acting in response to places we care about. When we look upon a setting that we can see and touch, the places of our physical limits, we are more likely to prioritize its continuation. You know, it's a common saying among farmers that land will be ruined unless it's properly, properly cared for. And you can only care for what you know. And you can only truly know what you can see. Seeing equals knowing equals care. Who would have thought, you know, that farmers were good phenomenologists? So you exist within a specific geographical proximity. So you want to change the world? What I'm saying is that you have to start there. And starting here, where you are, has a way of taming our desires. Like what would happen if you conceded yourself to only what is around you? To a strict dependency on a place with all of its limits and strange people and wild creatures? And I've noticed that our cultural ethos is that we have kind of elevated the individual to such an extent that, you know, you can pursue any legal self-interest at large. And, that, you know, that's what it means to be liberated. Away with the bonds that once held a place together. But going back to health and interdependence, who cares if you experience momentary enjoyment if it's at the expense of that which you depend on? Like, you can, you can hide your neighbor's junk and you know, our society's decisions by running away only for so long. The whole thing will eventually come back to you. The state of the world may be such that it is because we have consented to a lifestyle and economy where we can enjoy ourselves and reach for any luxury or convenience while destroying the world. And this is why agrarians always try to limit themselves to that which is within reach. They abide by the limits of where they are and who they are with. And let's just be honest, almost no, no human being will see this as an ideal or, or something to prefer because a lot of what we consider normal and what we've built our lives around 
almost all of the luxury and convenience and comforts, they wouldn't be possible anymore. At least in the modern Western world, we would never choose this. But if our standard is preserving health, you know, ecological entanglement, that requires some sacrifice of this liberated individual perspective of life. It requires acknowledging some of the constraints of human existence and the dependency that we might have on other things. We can be liberated at our own expense. And freedom's often discussed as, you know, the ability to be without constraints. But it may be that true freedom is a life that allows one to live well, and this kind of freedom and health can only be preserved by upholding responsibility and familiarity mutual respect, affection, loyalty to where we are and who we are with. You might have to put down some of your own personal individual preferences for the sake of that which you depend on. And that's what place economy intends to do, to create that standard and accept its requirements. Our society's unprecedented prosperity and desire for individualism may be keeping us from the one common thread of all wisdom throughout history, that we must belong together if we are going to thrive together. And I said all of this back in in the episodes on on work and economy, episodes 28 and 29, and, and really there's a direct relationship between what we explored about work and what we're exploring about ecology. And here's one of the main points. Our ancestors may have been unfortunate in thousands of ways, but they may have had the one thing we lack and desperately need, belonging. So, ecological ethics. Best way toward it is to see where you are within your limited soul and to belong there, which may mean foregoing certain preferences. Maximal well-being begins with minimal consumption because collective commitment transcends the individual desire. Which is really just a way of asking if we're willing to be at home in the world. Like our culture loves transience. We love being able to escape from the bonds among us anytime we want. But loving the places we are might mean giving some of that mindset up. Love requires that you can't just do whatever you want. Because in love, you have actually limited your scale and you've chosen a commitment. So you start with where you are because size neglects care. You can't be responsible for what you can't see or know. And this is a bit of a treatise on, on what community actually is. You know, everyone loves to throw the word around. In the last couple episodes on the podcast, we, we looked at the background of community. You know, people just saying, you know, I'm just looking for community, man. But community is an actual thing with actual descriptors. You, you, you can pop back to those episodes to hear some of that discussion. But to have a community, you must be in a certain context and proximity. You must exist within the memory of that context and its shared history. You must have a sense of permanence and commitment. And you have to have a shared vision amongst the collective that calls that place home. Notice that uh, movements, by the way, only aim at that last part shared vision. But literally, there are four ingredients to community. Shared history, proximity, permanence, and shared vision. 
if you're going to make ecological ethics happen, it's going to involve that. And that's based on the finite nature of you as a human being. Which means that community, and therefore ecological ethics, is not nearly as romantic as it sounds. Things like responsibility, familiarity, mutual respect, affection, loyalty, that comes at the expense of a lot of pleasure. At at least individual luxurious pleasure. But that's kind of the choice. And what's important about that community conversation is that in the scope of ecological entanglement, it implies that the whole place shares this common membership with these shared practices and this shared standard, including humans, but also the creatures and things that make up the whole space. So in order to make good ecological sense for the planet, we must make good ecological sense where we are. The real work of ecological ethics begins one small life at a time because these ethics require people acting responsibly in the only places that they can. Grand spectacles rarely change the world. Meager lives in small places do. Like you don't need to go someplace to change the world. You are someplace, be there. How would you live? If you were exactly what was needed to heal the world, well, you really need to take seriously how you would live because you are exactly what is needed to change the world. We all are, together. All right, that's the idea. But how does this work? What does this all look like? Well, that's what place economy is all about. So for definition's sake, Uh, Place is an area with a common geographical proximity and common sphere of influence. Ambiguous, I know. But determining where one place ends and another begins is not as simple as having like lines on a map or zip codes. Uh, So that's place. Economy, however, is a bit more important. Economy in the agrarian tradition is defined as the way a place enacts its life through the distribution and management of resources. A place economy, therefore, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you the definition. I don't expect you to click with all of this, but as I read this, I, I don't want us to forget the original intention. We're just trying to have a framework in which to enact ecological ethics in a realistic way. And I know it's it's a long game and we're going like, oh, this has to happen consistently for, you know, hundreds of years, if not longer, in order for it to work. Uh, but, you know, I want you to be thinking about what kind of life results if we acknowledge this framework. So, uh, place economy, you know, it is it different than what we often hear? Is it practical? Is it realistic? Is it helpful? Does does this actually do anything if we were all true to it? That That's what I want you to think about. Okay, place economy is a way a place lives in proper relation to itself for the health of every part of itself for the indefinite continuation of itself. Place economy is a way of living adapted to a particular context and area of influence for the best use of the place by understanding the needs and possibilities of the place which honors the interdependent health of the whole place. How was that? 
It's still a little vague, huh? But, but there are principles there, right? If you live by the constraints of your place with a commitment to it, what, what kind of world results? If you give up the liberation of individualism for the demands of community and include the whole ecosystem in that community, what kind of world results? One thing I like about place economy is that it doesn't prescribe specific actions. It doesn't say, here's the things you have to do to belong to the club. Instead, it invites you to ask questions and then transpose these ideas to what's actually around you. You know, what makes the most sense in light of the, the ethical standards that we're saying? And don't forget, the economic component is just as important. Because living in the world deals with how you use the world and manage the resources of the world. So how ought you live properly where you are? How ought you be paying attention to how your place produces goods and resources and foods and, and products? And what would happen instead of just like one larger global movement if you just had millions of small places doing this intentionally? That, anyway, is how I have tried to make decisions for ecological entanglement. Uh, so, so if I am proposing any kind of ecological ethic, it is this. You in your place must know where you are and must do what you must do to remain there. So much so that you become an extension of your place, always with its best interest in mind, even if it means giving up some of your preferences and conveniences until one day your bones rot into its ground and you've prepared that terrain for those who come after you to continue what you started. Ecological ethics will not happen by thinking globally. It will happen by thinking locally and acting appropriately. What must you do to care for the difficult and demanding place that you have a share of real life in? Let's just start there. And that also implies that we've taken the time to do the philosophical work of knowing what it ought to look like. But if the only thing you do is improve one small piece of the world, you have done more than what is otherwise possible. And this isn't going to be glamorous. But the only way to improve the world is one small place with one small person at a time. We need you to do that. And we need other people to do that. And we need people to take seriously where they are and what they're doing with their everyday decisions for the kind of world it's going to create. It's a long game. It's, it's a microcosmic game that can have macrocosmic effects if we let it do its work. But we got to start there. Thanks for listening. We'll finish this conversation next time because we still have to explore the most tactile form of this concept, which happens to also be a concept I love, food. And I'll also give some of the, the more practical stuff that I've kind of been avoiding. So, see you next time.